I want to talk to you this morning um, in the book of Titus. Titus is probably not one of those popular books, not one that you read a whole lot, but it's a really good book. Again, it's, Titus is written by Paul, and Paul wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament, and uh, he was just a really a godly man. And uh, like all the books of the Bible, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So different men wrote them, but the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say. And with the Holy Spirit's words, most of the time they're pretty direct. The Bible is a pretty direct Bible. It's a pretty direct word. It's a pretty direct book. And so, therefore, we should listen to it carefully. And we should do so as it says. Even though it, goes, it might go against our politically correct ways today, um, the Bible is the Bible. It's always going to be the Bible. It is the one thing that's going to last. So God's word will last. So let's listen to it and let's not water it down. Let's not try, try to twist it or to, to, to distort it to meet our ways of thinking, but rather let's, our, let's get our ways of thinking wrapped around the Bible. And when we do that, believe me, we'll have a better life in this life and the life to come. So I want to make sure as we read this word today, it's going to be a hard word. They always are when you read the Bible. They're encouraging, they're hard, they're good, but they're all for our instruction and they're all for our good. So let's go. Specifically today, I want to talk about a theme that runs through this passage of Titus, and that theme is self-control. Self-control. So we want to live our life with self-control. And I want to make this little caveat, or this little clarification. The strong teaching of God's Word is for two groups of people. Two groups of people. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, first of all, it tells us who the groups of people are. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says, He, or the elder, the teacher, or the pastor, Paul is talking to him, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right, two groups. The one group is the group that is encouraged by sound doctrine. That's the real, true Christian man and woman. That's the one that really is living for Jesus, and he wants sound doctrine. He wants strong word because he's willing to receive it to make tweaks in his life, to make the minor corrections in his life, to keep, make sure his life never gets off track. So um, Paul says that, we that those are encouraged by sound doctrine. And the other group are those that oppose it. And Paul tells Timothy that the teachers and the pastors and the elders are to refute those that oppose it. So the Bible is clear. We're to encourage others, some with strong doctrine, and others that don't receive it, they're to be refuted or taught. So which group are you in today? Whenever we get a body of believers together, there is a combination of all of those groups or those two groups. So you're either going to be encouraged today by the strong word or you're going to be opposed today. Both are good, by the way, because the fact that you're here and listening will give you hope, will give you a sense of, of freedom because maybe we can learn something. So with that as a backdrop, I really have a lot to talk through today, so let's get going. Let's, let's read. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Then we're going to come back and talk about it. Chapter 2, the first 15 verses, it says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. 
Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage to that one group and rebuke to that other group with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. We see again here the instruction by Paul to Titus is to teach God's word and nothing less or more. Teach sound doctrine. Verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now what does sound doctrine do? Why do we need to preach sound doctrine? It does a number of things. It keeps us consistent with the entire word of God. God's word will never counter, counter, contradict itself. It will never speak doublespeak. God's word is always true. And if I'm teaching sound doctrine, then it helps keep me consistent with all areas of Scripture. That I'm not now twisting God's word around because if I'm teaching sound doctrine, correct doctrine, if I'm hearing and listening to it, it keeps me pure according to God's teaching. Second thing is, when I'm living that consistent life, it makes my life less complicated. Think about it for a minute. That when I do what is right, I have less consequences in my life. When I do what is wrong, because all sin has consequences. So if I'm living with, according to sound doctrine, my life will be simpler. It will be less complicated because I will have less consequences to deal with. Let's keep it simple, right? Let's just do what's right. Simple stuff. If I hold a sound Bible truth, then when I have those compromising situations that come up that will ultimately bring destruction, if I'm determined to live according to God's word, then it helps me make good decisions. Because if I'm just going to say, I am not going to compromise, I am not going to do something that, that isn't right. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's... Um, with your actions, I don't care if it's the words that you say, how you treat people, what you eat, what you drink, what you smoke or don't smoke, whatever it is, when you just make a decision to say, I am going to live by God's word, then your life, your decisions, your life choices will be easier because then you don't have to figure out when do I compromise and when do I don't. 
Who am I going to be with in this part, in this group of people, or am I going to be like this group of people? Just be like Jesus all the time. All the time. When you're like Jesus all the time, guess what? Life gets simpler. It does. Why would, he say, why would he want us to do anything that wouldn't be simpler? If he says, be like me, be like Christ, it's for our own good. Let's talk about verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance. Now, really, I should save this verse for next week because next week is Father's Day. Um, and that's really a good time to talk to men. So I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it right now because I'm going to hit the fathers next week. Other than the fact that all these things listed, temperate means sober, vigilant, clear-headed, not given over to foolish things, worthy of respect. This is a big one. Respect is not demanded. Respect is earned. If you're going to be worthy of respect, then you have to live a life worthy of respect. You can't just say, I'm your dad, therefore you have to respect me, and then you, be, then you go do foolish things or not live a godly life. You're not gonna, you cannot demand respect. They will give you what you deserve. They may talk like it when they're in front of you because you're their dad, but as soon as they get away from you, they may be totally different because you haven't earned their respect. So fathers, dads, men... Live godly lives worthy of respect. Self-controlled, sound in faith. There's that self-controlled. We're going to come back to that later. Spiritual maturity cannot come unless a person has self-control and a desire to understand and operate in sound faith. Discipling themselves to read the Bible and praying. Men, you need to be praying. Men, you need to be reading the Bible. Men, you need to be learning all times. Men, it's time to step up and be godly men. Read the word, pray, be consistent, be diligent in your Bible study. Colossians 1.10 says, so, And we do that so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is a good word for older men. And then you have to have love and endurance. Older men, you should be seasoned in life with a sense of understanding and loving endurance for the boldness and rashness of youth. <laughs> There's young men that want to win the world, and they want to go out and they want to take it all at one time. But old men, older men, like Scott, you know, we need to be temperate. We, we need to have endurance and patience. I know, Scott. I, I know I'm, I'm getting it later. I know. Uh, you are a police officer, Mr. Hankins, so I have to be careful. Oh, I know. I just thought about that one. Mm. We just have to be, we have to be able to um, help younger men. Be patient with them. Endure with them a little bit. Help them through some things. Teach them a little bit. Don't be afraid to be there. Don't be afraid to be a mentor to them. Don't be, don't be a main, uh, afraid to talk sternly at times with love. But you know what? Sometimes what they need is just a pat on the back. Sometimes they just need to have somebody come up, put their arm around them, and say, you know, I'm really proud of you guys. I'm really proud of you, young men. This is a tough world to live in, and I'm really proud of you. Men, give out praise. Give out praise to the younger generations and encourage them with sound doctrine and sound praise when it's, when it's worthy, when it's respectful. Then he goes on in verse 3 to talk to the older women 
And he says in verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, there's that word again, and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. You know, there is so much wisdom that comes through living life. If we could only pass down all of that wisdom, all of that nugget of truth, if we could just suck the stuff out of an older woman's brain or an older man's brain and just put it into a younger man, how much wisdom we could do that. We could, we could just impart to them. Author Vicki Kraft, in her book, Women Mentoring Women, Ways to Start, Maintain, and Expand a Biblical Women's Ministry, that is a long title, That's, this is what she says, quote, We have bought into the notion that older people have had their day of usefulness and ought to make a way for the young. But the principle here is quite the opposite. With age and experience come wisdom, and many older women have discovered secrets of godly living in relation to their husbands, children, and neighbors, and in the workplace that could save younger women a lot of unnecessary grief. And when the unavoidable trials come to the young woman, who better to guide her than an older sister who has been through it before? Somehow the church must see that younger women have contact with older women. End of quote. Women... You may not think you have a lot of value, especially, you know, um, widows. You have so much to offer this church yet. Don't ever think that your time is over. Don't ever think that your heyday is over and it's time to just sit in a chair and do nothing. There are so many people that could gain from your wisdom, gain from your losses. You've gone through a hard loss. If you've lost a husband, maybe you've lost even younger kids. There is so much for you to teach younger women how to deal with life. Teach them. Don't be afraid of them. Let's not segregate us by just ages and young ladies with young ladies and old ladies with old ladies because that's not good. That's, that we're wasting precious experiences. So older women, find a younger woman and be a mentor to her. Find somebody that, that, that you think you could help and go to them and say, you know what, can I talk with you on a regular basis? Can we get together for coffee sometime? Can I pray for you? You know, whatever it is, whatever relationship you can set up with a younger woman, do that and you will be giving God's blessing to them through your wisdom, through your years of wisdom. You know, if the Bible says it, there must be some merit to it. This is not my idea. What the Bible says so let's do it. Okay, let's talk about young men. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, Paul doesn't specifically give us a list for the young men like he's given a list for the young ladies. If you go back up and put verses 4 through 5 up, Men, listen, young men, let's put, let's put men in where they were wives. This is love their wives. So men, you're to love your wife and children. You're to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home and work, to be kind and to be loving of their wives as the wives are subject to you. You have to love your wives. I believe one of the biggest problems we have in marriages today and I know because I'm in one, marriage that is, 
<laughs> and I have a few problems with it too, but I'm in a marriage, okay? <laughs> All right, I'll preach it, Chris. <laughs> Bail me out, Allie. I believe the biggest problem we have at home is that men don't love their wives as Jesus loved the church. If men loved their wives as Jesus loved the church, believe me, your wife would do anything for you. But yet men will say, well, my wife didn't treat me well, so therefore I justify my bad behavior. I justify my going running with the boys. I justify my drinking. I justify my other women because my wife isn't giving me what I want. Well, hold on a second. Go back to the beginning. And men, you love them like Jesus loved the church, and you'll get anything you want. Anything. Whatever's in your mind right now, you'll get it. But I'm telling you, if men loved their women, if men loved their wives, <laughs> if men loved their wives, as husbands love their wives, and I know I'm preaching to myself right now big time. You need to know how hard this is for me to say this because I know how guilty I am of not doing it. I'm not saying this because I think I know how. I'm thinking it because I need to do a better job. So I understand how difficult this is, but it's the fact. And when the Bible tells us to do something, then do it. Men, love your wives as Jesus loved the church, and lives will be better. There won't, we won't have 50% divorce rates in churches. We won't have it. We'll wipe it out because Jesus never divorced the church. So men, love your women. Love your wives. <laughs> love your wives. All right, that's the definition of being a godly man. Just love your wife and then do right and live self-controlled lives. Slavery is not an issue today, but yet he says it in verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, to show them they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Okay, since we're not slaves today, what's the next thing to slavery? How about being an employee? <laughs> An employee sometimes feels like a slave, doesn't it? All right, so take the word slave out and put employee. Empl uh, teach employees to be subject to their employers. Then read that through, and then you can be every way fulfilling the Scripture when you do that. I'm, I, I think another problem that we have so many times is that we are short-term thinking in our employment. We don't realize the blessing it is to have a job. We don't realize that's the godly way that God set and ordered this life up, is for us to work, to have a job, to honor our employers with everything that we have, employee. Everything. Don't steal from them. Don't try to take advantage of them. Don't think, well, they owe you something. They owe you those pencils that you're stealing from them or that paper or your time because you're putting more time on a time card or you're putting more on your expense report or any other way that you can steal from your employers. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's sin. Paul is telling the employees to treat their employers Christ-like. Here's another thing, too, that the old principle is of, of stewardship. If you want an advancement in your job, then treat your employer with respect. 
If you want to get up in life, if you want to make more money, if you want to be more responsible, if you want to have more responsibility on a job, if you want to be a boss, respect is earned, not demanded. It doesn't make any difference who you are, how long you've been at that job. If you're not respecting that job, if you're not doing the best you can do, then you don't deserve a raise. And you don't deserve a promotion. So, employee, be a good employee. Pretend if you have to. If you have to go to this extent, when you see your boss, imagine it's Jesus. Think of that. You're going into a hard day and your boss is going to howl at you. Imagine him being Jesus. Because in reality, it is. In reality, when you come under employment to that man and he pays you, you need to honor him like you would honor Jesus. So therefore, if you think that way, it makes your employment so much easier and so much more fruitful. And you will be honored higher. You will, that's how you get favor with men, is when you treat them with favor. Let's go to verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. All right, I've got a lot to say here, but I want to say this is it. Where, this is where the common element given to all, and this is where I got the, the title for this message, is to be self-controlled. Do you see, if you go back to verses 2, 5, 6, and 12, verses 2, 5, 6, and 12, and I'm not going to take the time to go read them, but self-control comes up four times. Four times when he's talking to old men, talking to women, talking to young men, and he's talking just general living in general. Self-controlled living is the common theme. Where else do we see in the Bible the word self-control come up? There's one particular verse that I'm looking for, and I'm not going to make you guess because it will take way too long. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things there is no law. But self-control is listed as one of the nine fruit of, fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is there for a very real reason because self-control holds all of the other fruit together. It is the common link. It is the glue that holds the fruit together. It is the laminin of the fruit. If you know what laminin is, it's that protein element. Okay, self-control is the key to the fruit of the Spirit. Love without restraint is passion. Joy without moderation becomes mirth and hilarity. Peace without moderation becomes idleness. Patience without balance becomes apathy. Gentleness without temperance becomes weakness. Goodness without control becomes submissive. Faith without moderation of reason becomes blind superstition. Meekness without restriction becomes fearfulness. Therefore, we have to have self-control in operating in all areas of the fruit if we're going to be functional. Self-control is so important. All right, where does self-control come from? Let's look back at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay, again, Paul is saying here that right conduct must be founded on right doctrine. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
Some misunderstand this verse to say that all men will be saved. But that's not what this verse is saying. It says, for the grace of God that, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All it has done is appeared. <laughs> but it hasn't been applied. All right? So it's appeared to all men. So basically what it's saying is it's available to all men. All races, all creeds, all genders. It doesn't make any difference who you are, what you've done. Salvation has appeared to you. But it hasn't been applied yet. You have to apply it through the blood of Christ. Okay, so we need to understand that. Let's continue the verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there's that word, upright and godly lives in this present age. So where does self-control come from? Self-control comes from the grace of God. Grace gives us self-control because it is the thing that teaches us to live ungodly lives. We have thought before, now we've been talking about grace, and I talked about this last week, but it's very worth repeating again this week. We have in the past been talking about grace a lot. And I believe that in many ways we as a North American church, not just Charlevoix, but all churches that I know of, have misapplied so much the concept of grace. Because we look at grace as a cover-up. Grace is the band-aid for my sin. Yes, and grace does forgive sin, and thank goodness it does. Thank you, Jesus, that you had enough grace and mercy for me that you died on the cross. And yes, that is what forgives my sin. But it does more than that. If all it did was forgave my sin, then I would never live a victorious Christian life because I would go from sin to sin, indiscretion to indiscretion, only to ask grace to cover it up. But what grace does, the all-encompassing power of grace comes in and it changes me. It teaches me to say no to ungodliness. It comes in and it changes my nature. It changes the man of who I was from an ungodly man to a godly man. That's the proper application of grace. So we have to apply that. Is, is grace just enough to forgive us of our sins so that we can go on sinning? Absolutely not. Romans chapter 6. So, much, so many times we've, we've applied grace as this magic potion that we ask for in the morning to cover up over our sin and indiscretion from last night. We've gone out and partied. We've gone out and done some things with our boyfriend or girlfriend or, or maybe even another woman that we're not married to or whatever it is. And then we come to church or we come to God the next day and say, forgive me. Is that grace? Is that what he's meaning when he says grace? Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But then skip down to verse 11 in the same chapter. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought, brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. The grace is the change agent. The grace changes you so that you're not under law. 
It doesn't just say you can go sin again and grace covers it. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking that we have to be perfect people because nobody can be perfect. So don't think I'm talking about you have to be perfect and I'm trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. I'm not. But I'm asking you, are you really changed? Has the grace of God really been applied to your life to change your lifestyle? That's where everybody needs to understand that. That's where you need to measure yourself. Are you changed by the grace of God? I know that grace always seems to be there for us, and it is. But when life gets too hard or too restrictive or it's not keeping up with the times we're living in or it's old-fashioned and all these different other things that come up and we think we can do it, we're really making grace a compromise. And we need to stop that. We need to stop that. We need to apply the God's grace in what it was intended to be, and that is the change agent in our life. See, if the grace of God is really applied to my heart as a man, then I no longer want to live in the evil and do what we once did. If you go to First Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10, it tells us some very interesting things. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received the mercy, but now you have received mercy, or put the word in grace. Because he's changed you. Once you were a person that didn't understand God's mercy, you didn't understand it, you didn't know any better, you were living a life of sin because that's all you knew. But once you receive Jesus, you become a new person. Then Peter goes on to instruct us how to live as peculiar people. Continue on in verse 11 and 12. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul Live such good lives, self-controlled, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, Christian men and women that have God's grace applied to their lives, that have that change agent of grace, you are to be so set apart that you are to be aliens and strangers in the world, not friends to it. Not friends to it. Now, where does that come from? James chapter 4 tells us very strongly that if we're friends with the world, we're enemies of God. We're to be so different from the people that we hang with. We're to be so different kids from the, the kids you meet in school. You're to be so different uh, men on your job than the guys you hang with that you are an alien, that they look at you like you have three eyes. Now, I'm not getting weird on us now. I understand that. I know we still have to live in the world with be relevant. To our, our mission statement is to be earthly effective through, or heavenly effective through earthly relevance. I understand that. But what I'm trying to get across here is that we don't have the right to compromise our biblical teaching to be friends of the world. Don't be afraid of the people of the world because they are no threat to you and they are no promise to you. They are just people. Rather, we're to have a fear of the Lord who is the Lord of our lives forever and ever and ever and ever. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. You adulterous people, 
Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow. I mean, I can't live both. I can't have it both ways. No, you can't have it both ways. You can't go out and party on Saturday night and be, and be God's friend on Sunday morning. You can't do it. Bible saying it. I'm not the Bible saying it. It says, if you choose to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us what? More grace. More change. More change element. More power to change. Not to cover, them a bit, not to cover my indiscretions. Not to cover my band-aids. But he gives me more power to change. This is what the Scripture says. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, to the brokenhearted, to the truly repentant person, not to the proud, arrogant man that says, I can live any way I want to live because I live in the age of grace. That's pride, that's arrogance, and God is not your friend. Wow. I'm sorry if this is hard, but that's the way it is. And this is, the, this is where it should encourage us. When we're sorry, are we really sorry for our actions or our guilty consciences? See, true sorrow brings repentance and a change of direction, a change of life that's obvious to those around us, not just, I'm sorry that I got caught. Big difference. Paul says in 2 Corinthians to the Romans, I'm sorry to the Romans, to the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 11, he says this, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, listen to this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What eagerness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. See, sorrow isn't what saves you. You're not saved because you're sorry. Sorry only leads you to the saving grace of Jesus if we have godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. There's a difference. Godly sorrow means that we're sorry that we have lost the relationship with Jesus and want to do everything we can to gain that back. So we repent and we turn away from our sinful ways. That's godly sorrow. That's the sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow is this. Worldly sorrow is meaning that we are sorry that we've lost favor with the world and want to do what it takes to gain that back. And that still leads to death and God's judgment. Therefore, if I don't make a true confession and the repentance, really, it's two elements here, guys and ladies. It's just not sorry. I can say I'm sorry, but now I need to confess it. And then I need to put action to it and called repentance. Repentance is an action word. It is turning around and going the other direction. It's multifaceted. Yes, I'm sorry. Now, and I've confessed my sin. God's faithful and just to forgive. 
but now I repent and I don't do it again. I don't go, I'm not like the dog that returned to its vomit. I don't go back and live in it over and over again so that I have to, be, so I have to ask forgiveness for that sin again. That's the difference. That's, when, that's meaning that we're not slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. Do you see why Peter is telling us to abstain from sinful desires so that we don't have to go back, don't have to deal with the consequences? So let me ask you this morning as we're getting ready to close up, what kind of life are you living? Are you living the life that's bringing glory to God or are you bringing confusion to those around you? Because they don't know who you are. Because you act, you confess, you say you're a Christian man. You go to the Charlevoix Assembly of God Church, which is a Pentecostal church, but are you acting like one? Are you living like one? Or are you confusing the people around you because they see you living a different way than what you're talking? Preach the word. Second Timothy. Preach the word. I heard it said by an old preacher one time. I, can't, I wish I could go back for the quote exactly. He said, preach the word. And if I have to, I'll use my tongue. In other words, I live my life so pure that my life is preaching the word. And if I have to, I'll speak. That's the godly life that we all could do. Let's finish up by reading, finishing up by verses 12 through 15. Again, it says, teaches us God's grace. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness or worldly passions, to live self-controlled. Self-controlled. There is, a, there is a unity here. There is a combined effort. Yes, God's grace saves, but I have responsibility to live self-controlled. I have responsibility. That doesn't mean that I'm saved by works. I'm still saved by grace. But my responsibility is to put my faith, with my action with it. In James it says, faith without action is dead. Confession without repentance is dead. I have to put action to it. I have to live a self-controlled life. I have to say no sometimes, kids. Young people, older people. I have to say no to the things that are not right. I know I'm beating it up pretty hard. Because while we are waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and, re and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Do not let anyone despise you, young person. If you're standing up for Jesus and your classmates with your friends, do not let anyone despise a godly life. Do not be ashamed of being a Christian. Do not be ashamed of living for Jesus. Do not be ashamed for saying, no, I don't do that. No, I don't go there. No, I don't drink that. I don't smoke that. I don't pop that. I don't do it. Why? Not because we're legalistic, legalistic people. Not because my mom and dad said no. Because it's ungodly and I don't live ungodly lives because I don't want to make Jesus mad at me. I don't want to hurt Jesus' feelings. I don't want to hurt the relationship that I have with him. I want to be self-controlled because I want to make sure that I am ready. Not just ready, but I'm eager for the coming home 
for the rapture or my own personal home coming. So as I close this morning, would you stand with me? I want to ask a couple questions. We're going to sing a song. We're going to pray. We're going to go home. But as I, as you stand here this morning, I want, would like you just to examine yourself and ask yourself a question. Am I living a self-controlled life? Am I living a self-controlled life? Am I working together with the Holy Spirit to honor Jesus in my lifestyle? Have I applied the grace of God properly in my life so that it is the change agent for my life? That I don't want to do the old man life anymore? See, confession doesn't change you. It's the change that comes as you repent and then apply God's grace as the change agent to give you the power to live the life that God is requiring of us. All of us. Me, you, all of us. No man comes to the Father on his own. And no man can live a godly life on his own. That's the power of grace. Now, with all eyes closed, I have to ask, is there anyone here that just is burning in your spirit to get, to get your life right with God? Is there anyone here this morning that just feels the tug of the Holy Spirit in their life that is so strong that says, I have to pray. I have to pray. I'm not asking you to make a confession that doesn't mean anything. I'm asking for you, do you have to pray? Do you have to repent? Do you have to put action to it? And do you have to go forward and say, it's me. I must get my life right with God because there's that burning desire in me. There's that tug in my spirit that says, I must get myself right with God. If you are, if that's you, would you raise your hand and just show the Holy Spirit that you're serious? I see that hand. I see that. Any others? Amen. The Lord honors you by being bold. I saw that hand. Thank you. The Lord honors you for being bold by this. You may have to go back. Maybe you've already done this before. Maybe you're, maybe you're already a Christian and maybe you're struggling in this life. You can still raise your hand. You can still say, Jesus, I still need help. In all honesty, my hand's up. I need help. I need it. I see it. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for understanding that God is only wanting the best of you, and he does, He's not happy with 85%. He's not happy with 95%. He's not happy until he's got 100% of your life. And then he'll work with you, and he'll work in you, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But if you think you're going to get it and not give in to God, then you're mistaken. I call to you today. I love you. I only want what's good for you. Yes, I've spoken a hard word. Yes, I've written a hard word. Yes, it is truth and it is honesty and it is hard, but it is for your good. I do not want to harm any of you here today. That is not my intention. My intention is to love you, to train you, to rebuke you, to lead you. 
into all righteousness so that you will be rested and you will have assurance and that you will have the peace of understanding that you are a godly man and a godly woman. And I have gone to prepare a place for you. I have gone to to prepare a home for you that I will bring you back unto myself so that when I come, that you are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, and you are set yourselves apart, and you are worthy of the bridegroom. Thank you, Jesus. Father, for all those that have raised their hands this morning, I thank you. I thank you for that integrity and that honesty. Lord, now I pray that you would just be powerful, powerful in their lives. That you would just make a difference, that you would bring a repentance, a true turning, and people would see the difference now in the lives of those that raised your hand. So that we're not just going back into the world as we were, but we're going back as changed people because we have God's grace applied into my life as the change agent, as the changer in me and in them, in all of us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We can't say it enough but to say thank you for your mercy and your grace. Amen. As we sing this song, if you want to come and pray, the altars are open. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed. You're welcome to come pray if you'd like. Amen. Thank you.